You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. All right. Uh, hey, well, uh, good morning. Um, hope you're all well today. How's everybody doing? All right, let's go. I like that. Good little response. Good little callback. I appreciate that. Um, hey, well, um, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us today. I, uh, I'm glad everyone was able to make it today and all that good stuff. Thank you so much. Really, I do want to emphasize thank you for joining us today. Like, you really can be anywhere, right? Like, uh, regardless of the theological ramifications, realities of God calling us to gather together, you could just be like, I don't want to listen to that, right? And you could just be anywhere and decide you, instead you choose uh, to be here. And so I'm deeply appreciative both uh, for you joining us today, but also for your personal obedience to the scriptures to say, y'all, I'm going to be with the people of God uh, on a Sunday. And so thank you for that. Uh, we're about to jump into our time of the word, obviously, and we're going to connect with God by jumping into scriptures together uh, and by exploring them, inviting God to meet us here, transform us. Uh, but before we do, I have some big news that I do want to share uh, over the last, uh, yes, that was great already. Uh, uh, over the last uh, few weeks, we invited you to pray for our church uh, as we look for a new location. The Holiday Inn has been uh, great, has served us well. Uh, this location never met one crucial desire for us, uh, which was really um, to be in the community that we want to serve like smack dab in the middle of the community that we want to serve. And so considering, considering in addition to that, uh, some of the challenges we're, we were already kind of running into uh, with space on certain Sundays, like for context, right? Before spring break, there was two, two weekends during spring break where every church is like, ah, we're, we just go ahead and scrap those two days from the, from the general attendance marker because we already know everybody's going to be out of town. The weekend prior to spring break, uh, the first weekend of March, we actually had our highest attended regular service ever. Uh, and so even today, like we can, bless you, we can look out and kind of notice there's like, we can probably note this, 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 and this person are missing from just our normal congregation. And it would already kind of verge to say like it's getting a little tight. You add them in, all of a sudden it's like, where are the new people going to sit? So we were already having to consider size limits here already. Uh, and so we've been looking and praying and looking and praying, inviting you to pray uh, and to look. If you had a suggestion, you were free to, to send it over to us. Uh, and I'm happy to announce today really that those prayers have been answered. And so starting in just a few weeks, we're going to move uh, to Josephine Houston Elementary, uh, right smack dab in the middle. Yeah, that's great. It really is exciting. Uh, right smack dab in the middle of Dove Springs. And here, friends, this is like a big step for us. Let me explain why. Uh, because it places directly into the community that we want to serve. Like literally the entire school is not just surrounded by houses. It is. But it's literally surrounded by front doors. Like people's front doors around the entire, all four sides of the property look directly at the school. It's a beautiful example, really, of what we said when we say like we want to be in the community. Uh, and so it's a, it's a big step. In addition, uh, we're already seeing a blossoming partnership with um, the principal at the school and the school in general where he's sending us or, or wanting to send us things that we can get involved in, ways that we can help. If some of you remember, we actually did their Serve My Park Day or My Park Day uh, a while back. That was actually the school that we were at for those of you that attended that. Uh, and so that's already great. In addition, it's not going to add to anyone's drive because it's only like six minutes away from here. So bam, uh, all the things actually happening. And so uh, we'll be giving details a little bit later today uh, during the announcements when it comes to like what that transition is look like. But so that you can mark your calendars, uh, our last day at the Holiday Inn here is actually next week, April 3rd. 
uh, where we Okay, like, all right, so we got some people very, very happy that we're not going to be at the Holiday Inn, all right? I was trying to cover that up myself, but I'm, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Sorry, Holiday Inn. Um, but after which, we'll be starting to transition over to Houston, and our first actual Sunday at Houston is going to be April 17th, Easter Sunday. And so mark your calendars for all those things. We'll explain more about that uh, in, in a little bit later on today. But I just wanted to personally tell you, and I also wanted to personally thank you. Ooh, there's a 100% chance I'm going to cry. Because, um, like, literally without you, none of that would be possible, right? Without you and your commitment and your sacrifice uh, and, and your giving of yourself, none of that is possible. The lives we anticipate reaching and the community that we hope is changed and shaped in some way by what God is doing in this church is not possible without you. And so I wanted to personally legitimately say thank you. Like, thank you for everything that you do, everything that you've done, uh, and everything that you're going to do. Uh, and so thank you, friends. Like, thank you. Um, be Also, just to add, like, as we close this chapter, like, be excited. Like, start praying for the community that we're going to really be, like, almost like smack dab in the center of. It's, it's going to be really fun. In fact, one of those days in between, we're going to go do just, like, a say hi to our new neighbor's day. Like a prayer and care, but on Sunday, we're also going to give like a little treat and a little letter to be like, hey, this is us, but we ain't going to park in your driveway. And if we do, we're going to tow that car. We're not really going to tow that car, but we are going to let you know whoever you are that your car don't need to be in someone's driveway. Uh, But yeah, so it's going to be great. Be praying. uh, Just be preparing your heart and all that. And so excited. All right. Now, let's go ahead and dive into our time in the Word. We're going to be continuing Our sermon series, I Am, uh, where we're taking a look at the I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John. And why is this important? Why would we take a look at these in the first place? Well, we say here uh, at Refuge that we have three core rhythms. What are they? Anybody just throw them out there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to lie. A little bit like I a little bit envision that to go better than that. But like at the same time, it's all right. All right. So three words. What are the three words? Ready? All right, nature is healing. Let's go. Okay, so uh, connect, grow, serve. One of them rhythms to be connecting with God, okay? And so we desire to connect with God, grow with family, and serve the city. The only issue is if we want to connect with God, we probably want to know who it is that we're connecting with, right? If you were to hear me, we said this before, if you were to hear me be like, yo, I want to connect with my wife, and you're like, yo, what's your wife's name? And I was like, bro, I don't know. You'd be like, that's super weird, right? Like, that's really strange. And so we want to know who who we're connecting with when we say we're connecting with God. And through the gospel of John, Jesus makes some gnarly claims. I mean, some gnarly claims. Uh, Stuff that if it weren't true, you'd look at Jesus and be like, man, this brother is crazy. Certified commitment crazy, right? Like, But most specifically, out of all these claims, he repeatedly makes claims about his identity. Not that he is uh, just the Messiah, not that he is uh, not just as a prophet, but specifically that he makes claims like, yo, I'm God. Like, I am God. And if we as Christians believe that these statements are true, which I pray uh, those of us that would say we're Christians in here would affirm that, that Jesus is God, um, that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, right? That's John 14, that that Jesus and the Father are one, that's John 10, that before history began, before Abraham and all the, the forefathers of, of the faith existed, Jesus has always been the eternal I am, God, that even Moses experienced in Exodus 3, that Jesus is God. That's from John chapter 8 when Jesus made that gnarly claim. Um, then everything else he says about himself should start to take on more meaning. 
right? It should start to take on, uh, not as him merely speaking about himself as though he was just a good teacher or a revolutionary or a helper of the hurting or poor, though he is those things. But even more so, his words about himself should start to carry the weight that they are not just describing a good teacher, a revolutionary, or an advocate, but they are describing God. In short, we study what Jesus says about himself, friends, because in learning who Jesus is, we learn who we are. That's true. But we also learn who God is. Uh, (laughs) We're getting there. You know, nature is healing still. It's just a process. All right. So anyway, um, that's why these statements are important. Right. That's why as people that long to connect with God, uh, we approach these words with that desire to say, God, help us learn who you are. God, help us learn how you describe yourself. Help us learn who you are and and your heart, your heart for me and my life, for my family, for my community, for my city, for my church, right? That's how we approach these words. And so today we're continuing uh, this this series regarding Jesus' statements with the phrase, I am the light of the world. That's the next one. I am the light of the world. And while we're uh, while we'll be working our way through uh, several different parts of John eight, we'll primarily be in John eight twelve, one of the first verse that uh, that Eileen uh, read today. And here's the main idea I would love for you to take away today: that there's no greater freedom than the freedom of being fully known and fully loved. That's the idea. There's no greater freedom, the idea of being free, the idea of not being constrained emotionally, mentally, spiritually. No greater freedom, okay, than the freedom of being fully known and fully loved. If that doesn't make sense right now, hopefully it will in a minute. I can't guarantee you that it's going to, but I'm hoping that it will. Uh, but to do this, what we're going to do is we're going to break down uh, several verses in John 8, and we're going to explore an idea that's at the heart of this text, which is the idea of darkness. Darkness. Um, in contrast to light, in our current uh, moment in history, there stands darkness. And, and near the end, we're going to take a look at two specific kind of sides of darkness. That is the darkness of harm, of harming others. And then the darkness of shame, which is almost kind of, I would more again, it's like harming yourself. And so we're going to take a look at kind of two sides of darkness, almost like harming others and harming self. We're going to label those the darkness of harm and the darkness of shame. So let's go ahead and dive in because it's going to take us a minute to get to those last two points. But, but I think the journey will be worth it, I'm hoping. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started. And so we're going to go ahead and look at John 8, 12 first and reread that. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. If you would pray with me, I want to steady my heart and uh, kind of prepare our hearts to more intently look at these words and focus on them. So, Father, thank you uh, for really just this morning. Thank you for beautiful news like next steps that we're taking as a church to fulfill the mission that you've given us. And, and in that, we know that we take with us not the news of who Refuge is, nor of who any given leader here is, or even uh, of any community that we share here, but rather uh, the good news that you are the light of the world, uh, that you are the Savior. More than that, Father, you are God. And so, Father, anchor our hearts in these truths today as we explore your word and invite you to shape and transform our heart based on how we receive them. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so as we jump into this text, we're jumping into uh, kind of a scene with Jesus that is quite normal. He is uh, just addressing a crowd. Uh, He's addressing a crowd during actually what's 
called the Festival of Booths, which is just a festival that really honored and, and remembered uh, Jesus' provision or God's provision through um, the Exodus period. So in the wilderness, right, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, this is in Genesis, and then they're like in the wilderness for like 40 years, and then God is like, I'm going to take care of you that time. They're honoring and remembering that specific time. And it's in this block of teaching that's speaking to this crowd uh, that Jesus makes the claim, I'm the light of the world, that it's going to cause some controversy later on that we, we might touch on if we have time. Uh, but it also, in that moment, speaks volumes about God's heart for his people. Uh, he says, and, and we'll paraphrase here, I'm the light of the world. Those who follow me will never walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. And those biblically astute in the room uh, may be hearing that and be like, yo, that all sounds kind of familiar. And you would be right, because John in John 8 is kind of pulling from and reapplying language that John used in John 1. So in John 1, 4, 5, uh, John, speaking about Jesus, specifically says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And this is important, y'all. This is really important because John is taking here in John 8, he's picking us up in his narrative, in his story, and putting us back into John 1 where he had already deeply connected Jesus to the person of God. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to evoke these memories of like, oh, just like, I just read this like 10 minutes ago, right? And, and so really, you can even see how he does this in John 1 by reading just the verses prior to verses 4 and 5. In John 1, 1 through 3, John starts, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's not just saying my teachings um, are a bright light, a.k.a. good ideas that I'm bringing in to the world filled with bad ideas, a.k.a. darkness. He's not just saying that, though he does do that. Uh, he's not just saying I bring hope, light, where there is currently hopeless, a.k.a. darkness. Though, again, he does do that. And he's not just saying I, I bring justice, light, where there is currently injustice, darkness. Though, again, he does do that, right? Rather, he's connecting himself to the reality that he is the God that created humanity, brought and breathed life into humanity, and has now come to save, redeem, and restore the humanity that he created by bringing new life to that humanity. That's what Jesus is claiming in this moment. And in that new life, we're given a new mind. In that new life, we're given hope. In that new life, we're provided justice. But those things spring out of the reality that God has come to dwell with his people and to seek and save sinners and to make the world right. Those are consequences of that reality, right? So, so this is the focus of what Jesus is saying about himself. And we can see the implications of this right away from the verse that we read, right? He says, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the second part of verse 12. Now, I wish, I wish deeply that I could be, sit here and be like, that means that the moment you follow Jesus, you're never going to encounter a hardship in your life after that because you're never going to walk in the darkness, right? Uh, and while I wish I could say that, that is not what Jesus is saying here, unfortunately, uh, he, uh, the reality is if you are in uh, a world that really stands on the ethics of darkness and you stand on the ethics of light, of, of godliness, you're never really going to run into trouble with that. That is inevitably going to happen. In addition, we live in a broken world. We're inevitably going to run into trouble there. And Jesus makes such things clear. But rather, what Jesus is saying is that those that follow me, 
will not walk in the evil of this world. Those that follow me will not walk in the evil of this world. Now, if you're anything like me, and you are realistic about who you are, and who I, I'm realistic about who I am, uh, that verse should scare the mess out of you, right? That verse should scare the mess out of you. Because if you're looking at that, them like five, six, seven words, and then you're looking at the person in the mirror, and you're like, man, I mess up all the time. I feel like every day I got to go see people like, bro, I walked through some darkness today, fam. Like, and in that moment, you would look at these words and be like, yo, does that mean I'm not a follower of Jesus? Before you kind of get carried away and start questioning your faith and your salvation and all that wild stuff, let me, let me just calm your heart. Uh, the term walk here is, is kind of like that. You know, you always hear that. Like, I'm, I'm going to spare you the in the Greek part. Uh, but, but rather, it means like a customary way of life, like a consistent, unrepentant, um, lacking grief, lacking conviction way of life to just walk through life in, evil, in the evil of this world, in the darkness. And so we, uh, when we look at this, what we're, what we're seeing here is Jesus saying, my followers will not have a way of life that is marked by darkness. And so, okay, uh, we shouldn't do bad things, right? Followers of Jesus shouldn't do bad things. We shouldn't walk in darkness without conviction and without, uh, without repentance and all that good thing, all them good things. So sermon pretty much over, right? Like that's, that's the point. And uh, friend, if that was the point, if that's where this story ends, I would say that uh, either one of two things are both, one, I'm a bad pastor, or two, Jesus is a bad savior. Uh, and I can tell you that there's ample room to question my uh, pastoral leadership. But I'm wise enough in that pastoral leadership to know that Jesus is not a bad savior. And so I know that this is not the end of this story. Um, You see, Jesus' point here uh, is not to stop us from doing bad things. Jesus' aim is not to stop us from doing bad things. Jesus' aim is to free us from the darkness that haunts our heart. That's the difference. I want, to hear, I want you to hear that again and to, to try to start internalizing what's happening here. Because I would go so far to say that this is probably a principle that reaches all of Jesus' teaching. Jesus is not, his aim is not to try and just stop you and me from doing bad things, right? But to free us from the darkness that haunts our heart. To free us from the evil that haunts our heart. Whether in a receiving way or in a giving way. And this is captured well, actually, just in the verses prior to this text prior to I am the light of the world. Just before this in most Bibles is the story of the adulterous woman. And in your Bible, you probably have a note in there uh, that says that this was not, this story of the adulterous woman was not in the earliest manuscripts. And that's right. Uh, it, is, it was not. It was not really in there. And so more than likely, this was not a story that was written down in the original inspired writing of the Gospel of John. Uh, it was probably more like a, a scribal or like copier edition where like they were copying it down after several manuscripts through several you know, centuries potentially. And then they were like, yo, that one story that was probably a well-known story that was probably a, a widely distributed story in Christianity. And they added that in there at a later date. But whether these words are more commentary or inspired scripture, that's beside the point of, of today. You see, the reality is those in our faith, those who are copying down the words of John, saw this story of the adulterous woman as bearing witness to Jesus' words in some way. That's the point, right? They saw this story as showing us something. They show us something about what Jesus means when he says, I'm the light of the world. They saw that and they said, man, this actually makes a lot of sense. This story and, and, and how it frees those walking in darkness. 
And so for those that don't know the story, I'm going to try to summarize it for you. A woman is caught in the act of adultery. She's seized by the religious authorities of her day. Uh, She's dragged out of her house. She's brought before Jesus. And and the religious authorities of that day tell Jesus, jumping 18,000 steps ahead, that she deserves to be stoned right then and there in front of Jesus and in front of everybody. Um, why and where the man is in this situation, I do not know. And that should probably tell you a little bit about what's happening. Uh, but um, regardless, it's, it's here that with this woman at the feet of Jesus, that darkness begins uh, to take on, I think, a much more nuanced, intangible meaning. We can plainly see at least two sides of darkness just through this story. First, we see, again, as I mentioned, the darkness of harm. That's the darkness that really motivates us to hurt others. Uh, let me ask you a question. This is a legit question I'm asking. I'm not, this is not, uh, what's it called when I, you don't want to answer? That's what I'm, yeah, that, that. It's not a rhetorical question. Um, why do you think these Pharisees did what they did in dragging this woman out, trying to shame her and wanting to stone her in the middle of the street? Why did they do what they did? Throw it out there. There are no wrong answers right now. Say it again. As an example, they want to use an example. Okay, anybody else? To test Jesus. This is a big one, actually. This is a really big one. So they want to test Jesus. They want to use her as an example. Uh, They're probably feeding some self-righteousness in some way uh, through this. Uh, And here's why I ask. It's easy in scriptures uh, that identify very pure and basic and evident evil. Right? Like, yo, that's bad. I think all of us would look at this text and be like, that's kind of messed up. It's easy when we see that to kind of disassociate ourselves from that, that version of evil. Right? When it's plain like this. In other words, when you're looking at the adulterous woman and the Pharisees, I think it's a lot easier to be like, yo, I relate to the adulterous woman in this joint, not the Pharisees, because that seems wildly messed up. Um, but hear me, friend, if you can't see yourself in the Pharisee, then you're well on your way to becoming just like the Pharisee. And that's the reality of when we read the scriptures and identify those real, almost pure, like that's messed up moments. You see, these were men that had probably been commended and admired their whole life, their whole life. They had been commended and admired. They had been praised. They had been uplifted. They had been hailed as leaders. They were sought after within their community, within their nation. And it probably started out for each one of these men with a deep, genuine love for God. I want to obey God, so I'm going to learn and memorize all of his law so that I can never break a single one of them. And that, right, was probably the motivating factor at the beginning. But after some time, like all of us, right, they probably started building their identity on those accolades. They probably started seeing themselves and feeling that their only worth was related to uh, as much as those accolades were true. And so their worth was only as valuable as the accolades were true. But the only problem with that, and you may be able to identify with this, is that the significance that comes from that type of of self-identification, that type of self-worth goes south extremely fast. So the moment you find a chink in the armor, the moment you find a hole in the mask that you're wearing, uh, you have to figure out a way to cover it up. And that in and of itself right there is where where you start to compare yourself to someone else. Because if I can't be valuable based on who I am compared to perfection, then I'll be valuable based on who I am compared to those that are more imperfect than me. That's where I'll find it. And so when we see the Pharisees dragging a young woman through the street, we see more than a bunch of angry, bitter old men. We see a desperate group of insecure men dragging the sacrifice for their own value to the altar of Jesus' feet. That's what you see there. That's what you see. Men that have seen Jesus come in 
and really just boss them in a lot of ways. They're probably hurt. They're probably bitter. They're no longer at the moment being seen as the most wise and the most valuable. And so what do they want to do? I want to drag this woman out here, show them that I'm better than her, but test him to see if he's better than me all so that I can just keep grasping this value that I've built on these accolades. Friend, I wish I could say, and maybe you're not with me here, but I wish I could say that I'm bigger than that. But friends, here's my confession to you, and I hope you hear what I'm saying. I'm not. I don't venture to say neither of you. You see, when I see someone else's sermon, someone else's paper, someone else's leadership get complimented, there's still a part of me that wishes that person was a little less talented, a little less smart, a little less eloquent, because if they were less just by a little bit, then I would be more just by a little bit. And I might even at that moment start to downplay the things that they do. I might to downplay their sermon. I might downplay their leadership. I might downplay their gifts. And without realizing it, I'm dragging their gifts and their blessings through the streets to make a sacrifice toward my own value. That's what I'm doing. You see, I'm not too far removed from the darkness of harm that's found in, in the Pharisees. And let me be honest with you, friend, neither are you. I promise you, them moments when you're scrolling through Instagram and something in you is like, man, that vacation looks way better than ours. The same little tick that's in the heart of the Pharisees to drag a woman out of her house is probably the same little tick that's at work in your heart. Because we're not far from it. That's the darkness of harm at work. That's what it looks like. But that's not the only one we see here. We also see the darkness of shame. We see the adulterous woman, right? Let, let me ask you again. Why do you think she did what she did? Let's just throw it out there. No wrong answers. Apparently, everybody's scared to give a wrong answer. Anybody, throw it out there. Why do you think she did what she did? Let's give just one. Just give me one. Guilt, okay, guilt. Temptation. Okay, those are good. Um, here's the thing. I don't know. And here's the thing. I want to be clear. We can't know with certainty about the Pharisees either. Um, but what we see in a moment where we look at someone like the adulterous woman is this, is this woman that clearly has done something wrong and is now at the feet of Jesus. At the hands of people that are oppressive and, and angry and... and unrighteous and, and evil, doing evil things at bare minimum. But what we don't see, right, is are, are things like, and I want to make sure you hear me, I'm not saying this is exactly her story, but, but things like years of mistakes that led up to that moment. That's what we don't see. We, we don't see years of choices that led from one bad decision to another. You don't see years uh, that, are, that have mounted on top of each other and started to manipulate and warp, warp her view of herself in that moment, right? Maybe she had issues with her father or with her mother, and she didn't feel the sense of affirmation that she longed for from them. And so maybe she never felt that type of affirmation. She began to seek that affirm affirmation out somewhere else, right? Maybe at some point uh, that led into questions about whether she was enough or whether she was 
valuable enough for someone to commit to her and to actually be with her and to actually say, you're enough for me. Maybe she had questions about that in her own heart to begin to creep in, right? Whether she was worthy of commitment, worthy of even love. And, and maybe she did marry. Maybe she found someone. But years of, of really like mental abuse and emotional unhealth had led her to demand a type of affirmation from her husband. He was never going to be able to give her. And so she keeps looking for it somewhere else until she finds herself enraptured in this relationship that's outside of her marriage. And ultimately, that relationship leads her to the feet of Jesus, silently filled with shame, unable to answer her accusers and her condemners, just blatantly silent as she awaits the judgment of this man that they've brought her and put her in front of. Again, I can't tell you that's exactly what happened to her. But can I tell you, I know it couldn't have been far removed from that. Because the human beings we read about in this book are the exact same as the human beings we see sitting in this room. And let me tell you, friend, the darkness that we experience is more than a simple sense of, I think I don't want to do that today. It's a compilation, a compounding, uh, a multiplication of every moment that we felt pain, every moment we felt rejected, the mounting identity that we've built through the darkness and pain we've experienced in the world that lead us to single moments where we say, the value of this darkness seems to be calling to me and say, I'll meet those needs. And we say, okay, that's what it looks like to be human. That's what it looks like to experience the darkness of the world. That's what it looks like to experience darkness within us. Again, I wish I could say that I'm bigger than the things that happened to this woman, but I'm not. And neither are you. Right? There are things in this life that I feel like I don't have, that I wish I did, so I run to things, emotional things. I mean, all of us are like, I want a Bugatti, but, but I, don't, I mean things that are more fundamental to who we are. Aspects that we build our identity on, and when they're lacking, we feel like our identity is gone. And, and so I, like you, run to Netflix. I, like you, run to shopping. And think if I could just buy a new, a new uh, technology, then I'm going to feel better about myself. Right? And the heart of the matter, we're all just like her. Longing for things that we may feel we never had, searching for them wherever we think we can find them. This is the darkness that Jesus is talking about when he says, my followers, they won't walk in darkness because they'll have the light of life. That's what he's saying. But here at Jesus' feet, right, this is where they meet their actual match. And that's what's, that's what's powerful. He, here's what he does in response to this moment of darkness. Jesus is he's seeing this woman. He starts by bending down and, and starts to write in the sand. We don't know what he's writing. The Bible didn't say that. But he, he gets up after that and says, those who have sinned cast the first stone. We all know that line. Then he bends down and continues to write in the sand. Many uh, commentators think that maybe he was writing the sins of the past that each of these uh, religious leaders had committed, maybe generally, but maybe even specifically. And so one by one, starting from the oldest to the youngest, they start to drop their stones and walk away. And I do wonder how they may have felt that day, if I'm being honest, though. 
I do wonder if they had felt exposed. I do wonder if they had felt seen, if they felt ashamed, if they felt scared that the reputation they had spent their whole life building was going to come crashing down based on what that man is writing in the sand right now. And worse, that possibly the identity that they built up for their entire lives was going to go kaput in one moment based on that writing in the sand. But had they stayed for just one more moment instead of walking away, I think they would have seen something extremely beautiful. They would have seen the light that exposes everything turn to a woman who had nothing left to expose, who was laid bare, completely vulnerable, without anything to cover her shame, but laid out completely bare and say to her, where are those that condemn you? And for her to reply, I have none. And for him to look back and say, I don't condemn you either. Friends, hear me. Jesus is the light that exposes everything in who we are. He exposes everything. He exposes the best parts of you. The parts that probably need to be called up in you. The parts that you probably sleep on yourself. That you're like, I don't know if I'm that good at that. And he's like, bro, I made you. Girl, I made you. I know you. You are going to be great at that. But he also sees the parts of you you wish no one saw. The parts of you that, that if someone dragged you out of your house in the middle of the day and brought you before uh, some type of righteous, even a pastor in our church, you would sit there silent and say nothing to defend yourself. Because in your mind, you're thinking, I'm not worthy of defense at all. He sees those parts too. He's the light of the world because he exposes it all from the top to the bottom. Yet he's also the only one that can look at that person and say, but I deeply love you still. I deeply love you still. Others may have brought you out to shame you. I, br I reveal you in order to love you. Others may have sought right to, to embarrass you. I, I want to build you back up. You may have covered yourself thinking that you were protecting yourself. I want to unveil you in order to heal you, right? That's the difference in the darkness that Jesus is talking about versus the light of the world, right? Jesus' claim, I'm the light of the world. It's an invitation, friend, to be ultimately known, scarily known. For him to shine the light on every single part of your heart. And I don't mean just what you say with your mouth. Because oftentimes this moment is like, yeah, I'm kind of vulnerable with blase, blase. But I mean the parts of you where internally you don't look in the mirror and accept this is who I am. Because internally you couldn't, you couldn't handle this is who I am. Where I'm talking Al Pacino, you couldn't handle the truth right now, baby. And that's the moment that we're talking about. Right. When you're looking at there and you're like, I know that I struggle here. I know that I struggle there. I know that I'm needy here. I know that I'm needy there. I know I pursue this in order to meet this need that is probably blown way out of proportion. That's probably so far removed from God's hands that I'm just going anywhere to get this bad boy satisfied. But you don't want to say that's who I am when you look in the mirror. The first step to being vulnerable here, friends, is the step of being vulnerable with the person in the mirror. That's what we're talking about. when We're saying the light of the world. The one that makes you look at yourself and go, I'm going to accept things about me that I hate. Because the light of the world is saying, but I'm going to show you things about yourself that even though they're rotten, I still love. What good news that that's the Savior we serve. That's the God we follow. That he's not just Jesus, 
the teacher, the revolutionary, but he's Jesus, the light of the world. I wrote down if I have time to say the next thing. So I think I have a little bit of time, so I'm going to use it. Um, It reminds me of a story that Charles Spurgeon, the great London Baptist preacher, used to tell. And he got it from somewhere else, but I ain't spent enough time, like, sourcing all the material. You know what I mean? So I was just like, yo, Spurgeon said this? That's lit. And then I just put it in the notes. Um, He used to tell this really great story where he would say, the light of the world is like a crippled young man who was in a room that was only dark, who had heard about the light and understood the glories of the light, but had never seen the light. And so he goes to his caretaker one day and says, can I see the light? And they roll him in the middle of the night out into the London streets and he sees for the first time the the, the, the side street lights in London and he looks up and he beholds them and he's mesmerized. And he looks and says, Man, that's beautiful. But after a moment, he notices that between each light in the city, darkness reappears. And he can't actually find just light because darkness is interspersed between them. And he says, but darkness is still here. So is that the sun? And so they take him and they wheel him out into the countryside of London. And he looks up and now he sees the stars even bigger and even brighter. And he says, man, that's beautiful. And he's mesmerized. And then he says, but there's still darkness between them. Is that the sun? And they begin to roll the young man back until finally as they're rolling back in the distance, he sees an orange glow start to take the the sky. And he sees the orange glow turn to amber and then turn to purple. And then it turns to a bright orange and then it turns to yellow. And eventually he sees this giant ball of fire coming up over the horizon. And with it, Every piece of darkness that was in between the lights begins to fade. And with the rising of the sun, nothing that was unveiled or that was veiled is now unveiled. And he looks at the sun and knows that's the sun. And he recognizes there's no greater light than the sun. Nothing could spread, could take darkness away like the sun. There's nothing greater. To the understanding that if I wanted to be warm, My solution is not to find something other than the sun, but to get closer to it. That's the only thing that'll solve my issues. That's our soul. As it is with the soul, with the the story that was the way he would, uh, Charles Perger kind of turned the story. As it is with our soul. We partake in the lights that we see, trying trying to push off the darkness as much as we can. And so friend, I know, I do it too. I pursue, again, the Netflix, the retail therapy, but maybe more fundamentally, I, you know, like, like the, the websites and, the, and, and the, the, the world that we know, like, yo, this isn't right. And I know it's not right, but I'm trying to meet the need that the darkness keeps presenting me. But ultimately, right, even, even those moments of light that we see are only meant to give evidence to a sun that exposes everything, that exposes the top to the bottom, And it captivates us in beauty, but also captivates us in light. And the only thing that's that's maybe more enrapturing than the fact that the sun has unveiled everything is the fact that only the sun can bring the warmth that the body needs. And so we recognize there's no place that I can go besides the sun. And if I want more healing, I need to go closer to the sun. 
There's nowhere else I can go besides the sun because he's the ultimate source of light. That's what Jesus says when he says, I'm the light of the world. That right there. Friends, how many of us right, are, are living like this? You're not going to live like this all the time, but, but here's the thing. I hope that these words, rather than convicting you, bring you hope because he doesn't say I'm the light of the world in order to say I'm going to embarrass you. He's saying I'm the light of the world because I want to expose you and heal you. Right? I, I, I want to bring life. This, these are Jesus' invitations in these words. These are the hearts. Like, these words reveal God's heart right? as, as he seeks to save the lost, but he also seeks to care for his sheep. That's you. That's me. So, friends, with these words, I mean, I hope that they settle on your heart. And I hope that as we begin to hear them, we begin to take the, the necessary precautions, and the necessary actions of saying, Lord, help me deal with myself. Before I can bring them to you, before I can bring them to community, I have to bring them to myself. I have to be open and honest about the things that are going on in my heart and the places that I'm kind of scared to unveil, kind of scared to be honest about. Right? Like, like that's the work we have to do. And so if you can look at yourself and be like, yo, I've got some dark stuff I don't even look at, go see a counselor. I see a counselor. I've been seeing him for like, I've been there three times right now. That man says stuff that messes me all the way up. I mean, <laughs> the other day he looked at me and was like, you know, sometimes, you know, when life is less than utopian in your childhood, you, you make like a utopian life in your home now. And, and sometimes when that's lost, you can kind of get mad. And I was like, Ooh. you know, like, I was like, man, you be saying stuff that I think is mad basic. And then when he says it and applies it to me, I'm like, dang. You know, like, go see someone. That's a common grace of God. But what I'm, what I'm getting at here is do the work to confront the parts of who you are that you know you have trouble to confront. If you need to take that with a friend that you know you can trust, go share that. If you need to take that up with me as your pastor, friend, I'm here. I'm not going to judge you, right? Man, I'm probably right there with you. So, so bring it to me. Take it to a cancer. Wherever you need to go in order to start that ball rolling of saying, I'm going to unveil everything. And the light of the world is going to make it so scary. But only the light of the world will bring the warmth that can counteract that fear. So I'm giving myself to the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the declaration of who you are and the truth uh, that you are the light of the world that exposes everything. But you're also the light of the world that brings healing for the deepest parts of our hearts. Father, help us to, to recognize that being rendered bare... Um, uh, as scary as it sounds, is not uh, the ultimate um, thing to fear. Um, it's not the thing that we should, should have the most fear of, but rather, right, when, when it's done before the light of the world, you, Jesus, that we can welcome that, knowing that your intention is not to shame us. Your intention is not to embarrass us. Your intention is to show us. Your intention is to show us who we are and then show us the depths of your love even more. Let us continue to draw closer and closer to you, Father. Let us continue to draw closer and closer to you, Jesus. Trusting the depths of your love is shown on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.